History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. Episode 56, Domestic Affairs. At long last, we can step away from the Yona Wars and look east to the vast extent of the Persian Empire beyond the Mediterranean. Last time, I wrapped things up with the beginning of a more than a decade of Greek offensives, but with Herodotus in the rearview mirror, our sources are a lot less detailed. Basically, Sparta is mostly out of the picture, but Athens is now leading the Delian League and peeling every island conquered by Darius and Xerxes and Cambyses out of Persian hands, while trying to support the scattered and mostly unsuccessful revolts in mainland Ionia. There's been a little action in Thrace too, with some Persian outposts falling to the Delian League and others still under Xerxes' control. Of course, that's an ongoing military situation and the defining source material for the reign of Xerxes, so it's not possible to entirely extricate ourselves from that. But we can start phasing it out by looking at Xerxes' domestic policy on the western borderlands and then moving east bit by bit. But only a bit. In terms of specific people and events, the span from 478 to about 470 is pretty hazy. 
So this episode will be a combination of broad geopolitics and the last few stories from the reign of King Xerxes. Moving from west to east, the consequences of the war obviously become less and less drastic. On the western fringe of the empire, Persian rule came to an abrupt and unexpected end for most people by 476 at the absolute latest. Artabazos rode through Thessaly and Macedon, assuring the inhabitants that the late Mardonius would be right behind him, days after Mardonius had died at Plataea. At first, I'm sure nobody knew what to do, and just kind of sat quietly. In Macedon, Alexander I was left in an awkward position. He did not have an overwhelmingly pro-Persian reputation, but had still acted as their emissary to the Greeks and angered the Athenians. He maintained a kind of quiet neutrality, and Thucydides alludes to the possibility that he repelled a preliminary attempt to annex Macedon into the Delian League. He also took the opportunity in the power vacuum. Macedon expanded its territory into western Thrace for the first time following the Persian retreat from Europe. Thrace itself also fell out of Persian control over the course of the 470s. Ironically, the first part of the region to slip from the Achaemenid grasp was also the closest to the rest of Persian territory. Sestos and the Chersonese Peninsula, which was besieged by Athens. The western edge of Thrace, including the areas that had been in open revolt, were apparently annexed by Macedon, while the central bastion of Persian control was also besieged by Athens. This brings us to the city of Aeon, which is also the site of our first little anecdote today, which I admit I really should have included in the last episode. For whatever reason, it is actually buried in a paragraph of Herodotus away from the rest of the wars. The Persian commander at Aeon was a man called Boges, who resisted the Athenian fleet under Chemon, son of Miltiades. Boges held out until there was no food left in the city, with Macedon keeping its head down and Athens in control of the sea, there was no way for relief to reach that Persian garrison. According to Herodotus, he built a huge funeral pyre and had his entire household, concubines, his wife, his children, and even his servants, killed and burned. While his loved ones were being cremated, he had all of the gold and silver in the city dumped into the Struma River before jumping on the pyre himself, Denethor style, and burning alive. Typically, there's a good reason to doubt the idea of a Persian cremating anyone. There's not much evidence to suggest that it was a Persian practice, and Zoroastrian religious precepts strictly forbid defiling fire with a corpse. Killing your family in the face of a siege is also a well-worn trope in ancient literature, but it certainly happened. On the other hand, this was happening around 477 BCE, and Boges had two models to draw on, Sestos and Plataea. At Sestos, the Persian commander and his son were slowly and brutally executed by the Athenians after they pillaged his treasury. 
At Plataea, the corpses of the Persian dead were defiled and examined as curiosities. From Bogay's perspective, killing his family and destroying their remains while losing all of the city's treasure may have been the best way to spite the Athenians. After Bogay's death, the last Persian garrison in Europe was Dorsicus in central Thrace, right around the modern Greco-Turkish border. Xerxes had just installed a man called Moschemes as the governor when he stopped at that fortress on his way to Greece in 480. Moschemes managed to hold on to Dorsicus and the surrounding area despite Athenian attempts to besiege the city until he was ordered to withdraw, which we'll discuss in a later episode. However, Dorsicus was a Persian enclave as Athenian influence spread along the Thracian coast and a new power developed in eastern Thrace. According to Herodotus, both of these Persian holdouts in Thrace were honored and memorialized in Xerxes' court after the fall of their garrisons. Much like Alexander I, a new king was able to exploit the power vacuum left in the Persians' wake. A small-time kinglet named Teres was the ruler of a Thracian tribe called the Odrysians. Almost immediately following the Persian withdrawal from Europe, the Odrysian kingdom expanded rapidly, coming to dominate most of the region if it wasn't already under Athenian control. A similar, though less well-understood phenomenon played out in the Cimmerian Bosporus. This is not the area around Byzantium, which I'll get to in a minute, but the body of water we identify today as the Strait of Kerch, separating the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. I've been hesitant to address any kind of Achaemenid control on the far side of the Black Sea, mostly because there's not much evidence for it at all. However, I admit that I sometimes miss things. There is some evidence to suggest that the Achaemenids exerted some kind of control over a very narrow strip on either side of this strait, where Greek colony cities dominated as an extension of Persian Ionia. That control also ended right around the time Xerxes' forces pulled out of Europe. Diodorus Siculus mentions that a local dynasty called the Archaea Noctidae took control in 480. In addition to any unknown events at that far-flung end of the Greek world, Persian control was almost certainly contingent on their naval power, which was all but obliterated in the wake of Macaulay. The combination of the burning of the fleet and the Athenian occupation on either end of Thrace effectively marks the end of the Achaemenid high water mark. Even if these newly independent kingdoms like the Cimmerian Bosporus, Macedon, and Odrysian Thrace paid lip service to Xerxes, the maximum extent of Persian territory was now a thing of the past. Our last stop in Europe takes us to the other Bosporus, the one most of us think of as the real Bosporus, and the city of Byzantium. Of course, in the last episode, Byzantium featured prominently as one of the last victories for a unified Hellenic League. But not all Persian losses were permanent, though most were. This is another event that I mentioned last time, but I need to expound on it here. We left Byzantium in the hands of the Hellenic League as it fractured. 
Athens and the Proto-Delian League occupied the city and refused to accept Spartan commanders after Pausanias was ordered back to Sparta on suspicions of conspiring with Xerxes. Not long after that, the commanders of the Athenian-led force left and founded their new league on the island of Delos. Nobody really mentions what exactly happened in Byzantium after that, but Thucydides tells us that Pausanias, now acquitted of his supposed crimes, returned to Byzantium as a private citizen the next year, in 477. Of course, Pausanias wasn't really a private citizen. Legally, he was still the regent of Sparta for his nephew, Plastarchus, but Plastarchus was probably getting old enough to do some things on his own, and he had plenty of other relatives to guide him. Pausanias just wasn't going to Byzantium as the commander of a Greek army, and I stress the use of the word Greek here. Evidently, the city had fallen into the same kind of neutrality at some point after the foundation of the Delian League, because when Pausanias returned, he not only began exchanging letters with Artabazos and Xerxes again, but he took control of the city government with Persian support, and apparently no opposition. He freed the Persian nobles who had been imprisoned when the Greeks had invaded in 478, and kept on sending letters. Even though the conspiracy to instigate a Helot revolt in Spartan territory and invade the Peloponnese for Persia had collapsed, he had clearly ingratiated himself with the Persian leadership. Not only that, but the victorious general of Plataea, who had ordered the swift execution of Medizing Theban oligarchs, seems to have turned to the Persian side completely. Thucydides offhandedly mentions that Pausanias marched through Thrace, attended by a bodyguard of Medes and Egyptians. This just seems to be an event that everybody knew by about 400 BCE, and the historian felt no need to elaborate. So all we can really do is guess. That said, this sure sounds like the Spartan regent was entrusted with a small garrison at Byzantium, and campaigned in eastern Thrace on behalf of the great king. The timeline is completely obscure at this point, but he may have been trying to check the growth of Odrysian power because he seems to have avoided interacting with any Greeks in the area. We just don't know, though. In the long run, this march doesn't seem to have had any lasting impacts. Whatever the case, Pausanias's Medizing was apparently complete. He began to live the life of a Persian ruler, wearing Median dress, and keeping a Persian table according to Thucydides. Keeping a Persian table is especially interesting. Once again, the importance of dining together appears in this Persian context. A Persian table, in Thucydides' words, probably means that he was holding court in the Persian style. Pausanias's power seems to have expanded from Byzantium to other Greek cities in the Persian sphere as well. We know from both Thucydides and Theseus that Persian armies, like Pausanias's bodyguards, were rushing around to put down revolts in Greek cities all through the 470s. Thucydides tells us that Pausanias eventually took up residence in the city of Colonae, 
on the northwest coast of Anatolia, just south of the Hellespont. According to Justin and Pompeius Trogus, Pausanias reigned in Byzantium for seven years, presumably meaning he served Xerxes in general for that same length of time. That brings us to the late 470s, or maybe 469, when luck turned against the Spartan regent. Still technically a citizen and ruler of Sparta, he had actually managed to avoid any firm evidence of his actions in Xerxes' service, making it back to his homeland. No matter what was said about him, he always had plausible deniability at his back. But eventually, one of his own messengers turned informant, and began reporting back to the Spartan ephors with hard proof of just how far Pausanias had fallen. Presumably using his regency as an excuse, the ephors got him to come back to Greece and meet with the accusing messenger at a town called Tynaros. But it was a setup. Thinking he was meeting with his own trusted agent, Pausanias spoke openly of his actions in Xerxes' service. While he was leaving, he recognized one of the Spartan leaders who had spied on their meeting and realized what was happening. Pausanias tried to take refuge in the cellar of a temple to the goddess Athena, because it was considered sacrilege to harm anybody in a Greek temple. Unfortunately for him, nobody ever said anything about the classic Batman tactic of just not saving the person in the temple. The Ephors had the cellar barricaded, took off the roof, and waited for their one-time hero to starve to death before burying him in an ignominious grave with a simple marker, posthumously stripped of all of the honors he had won for his service at Plataea. This shame apparently did not extend to the rest of the Posanius family, though. Ultimately, his nephew, Plastarchus, died childless, and Pausanias' own son became King Pleistonax of Sparta. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. 
And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Back in the Empire, Pausanias's sticky end had very little impact on the overall strategy Xerxes had deployed in western Anatolia. Many local leaders had died in the naval defeats of the past few years, and more importantly, the king needed trusted wartime commanders in a region that had suddenly become the front line of an ongoing conflict. Pausanias's right-hand man in Byzantium was an Eritrean defector named Gongolus, who had been one of the only Eritrean nobles to support siding with the Persians in 480, and had fled to Byzantium. There, he had become Pausanias's emissary to Artabazus and Xerxes before being given command of the city itself while Pausanias was away. According to Xenophon, his family quickly integrated into the Persian hierarchy in Anatolia, and his sons ended up ruling four Aeolian Greek cities on behalf of Darius II, well after Byzantium had fallen out of direct Persian rule. In fact, Xenophon notes that several Greek defectors and loyalists to the Persian cause were given land in northwestern Anatolia all in places that ensured continued Persian control over the Hellespont, the Bosporus, and the city of Cumae, which served as Persia's northmost naval base. This included the Samian loyalist Philakos and Demaritus, the former Spartan king in exile. These Greeks in Aeolus and the Troad were all subsidiaries of the newly installed satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, Artabazos. Despite Herodotus' story of his retreat from Plataea, Xerxes awarded his cousin one of the most strategically important satrapies in the empire. Artabazos became the leading governor in charge of one of the empire's foremost naval bases, and all trade out of the Black Sea, both of which were major targets for Athenian ambition. Of course, as a coastal ruler in Anatolia, he also found himself ruling over a number of Greek cities that were considered either flight risks or potential Athenian targets. The whole region was considered one of the most strategically important parts of the Western Front, at least so far as we can tell. Xerxes put extraordinary effort into reinforcing the northwest corner of his empire. Before departing Sardis and heading back to the capitals, he gave the order to construct a new fortress and palace at the city of Kalainai, at the intersection of the Meander and Cataractes rivers, which formed both important trade routes and the major navigable waterways in Phrygia. 
routes that, say, an Athenian navy could use to invade further inland. This period also corresponds with one of the only major Persian colonization efforts in Achaemenid history. A large number of ethnically Persian, or at least Iranian, soldiers were transferred to northern Anatolia permanently, bringing their families and lives along with them to newly founded garrison towns. The greatest concentration of these colonies was in the Kaikos River Valley, now called the Bakirsai. This probably coincides with the increase in Persian settlement in Cappadocia and the Pontic region further east, also not coincidentally areas with a high Greek presence. The most troublesome Greek cities were always in Ionia, which fell under the jurisdiction of a different satrapy, Lydia, ruled by Artaphernes the Younger in Sardis. Unfortunately, we don't hear much more about Artaphernes than what I mentioned in the last episode. He probably commanded most of the Persian forces raiding Greek cities and dealing with outbreaks of rebellion. Even going further south, the importance of naval strongholds and newly empowered loyal commanders remains evident. We don't hear much about Egypt or the Levant in this period, especially after Egypt's rebellion in 486, but it seems that the king of Sidon's leadership in the Persian navy during the Persian offensive was well rewarded. The city of Sidon was made the preeminent city of Phoenicia, while the other cities maintained a degree of independence and their own kings, Sidon was now the undisputed head of a more centralized Phoenician confederacy. Between Phoenicia and Lydia, Cilicia, the major Achaemenid naval base in southern Anatolia, was also under new management. The local kings, known as the Sienesses, were still largely autonomous, but the Carian Greek governor Xenagoras was given authority over the kingdom to keep it in line with Persian policy. As I said in episode 54, Xenagoras received his position for saving the life of Mesistes, Xerxes' brother who finally provides our way out of Greek affairs. Herodotus's story of Mesistes is sometimes called the Mesistes Romance, because it follows so many well-worn fictional tropes. But a kernel of political reality is almost certainly at the center of the story. So for the last time, let me reintroduce Mesistes. At this point, you've all probably heard this before, so I'll be brief. For the most detailed version, see episode 41, The Greatest. Mesistes is identified as the satrap of Bactria and a son of Darius by Herodotus, but his name is very similar to Methishta, a Persian title translated as the greatest. Xerxes used that title to identify his position as crown prince in inscription XPF at Persepolis. This has led some scholars to speculate that Mesistes is actually a title misinterpreted by Herodotus as a name. In that case, he could really be any of Xerxes' brothers, though one of his elder half-brothers Viadarius and the daughter of Gabrius are the usual candidates. If you cast your memory back to episode 56, you might remember that one of those brothers, variably called either Artabazus or Artabazinus, marched against Xerxes at the start of his reign and then kind of vanishes from the historical record. 
This could be the same brother, but it's also entirely plausible that Mephishta is not a title and Mesistes was really just named that. There was even a different person with that name in Babylon a couple generations later. We only have that one example to actually suggest that it was used to mean crown prince, and people have been named weirder things. Heck, there are people named Maximus and Maximilian walking around right now, which basically means the greatest. So I'm going to treat Mesistes as the name for the brother who became satrap of Bactria after Artabazinos rebelled earlier in Xerxes' reign. After fleeing the Battle of Mycale, Mesistes joined his royal brother at Sardis. Now Herodotus places the entire first half of the story at the Lydian capital, but based on other Greek sources and the events of the latter half, I think it's much more likely that if any of it happened, it would have been back in the imperial center. The timeline of events sounds like the events of years rather than months. And fair warning, the last couple of stories from Herodotus are some of the few he told with explicit sexual violence. As the story goes, Xerxes was smitten with Mesistes' wife and kept trying to make advances on his sister-in-law. To her credit, this unnamed woman repulsed the King of Kings' advances repeatedly until they just stopped coming. Unfortunately, Xerxes stopped coming to Mesistes' wife because he had taken notice of his daughter. Xerxes' infatuation rapidly transferred to his own, much younger niece, Artonte. Even a lustful king of all lands seems to have had the good sense that demanding marriage to his own young niece would have been a court scandal. Instead, he did something arguably much scummier. He proposed to Mesistes that Artonte should marry her cousin, Xerxes' eldest son and heir, Darius. Not only was this basically an order from the king dictating government policy about the line of succession, but it was also a chance for Mesistes to insert his own children and heirs into the throne. From his perspective, this was either a great honor for the younger brother of the king, or he actually was from the Gobriad side of the family, and this was the opportunity to finally tie his family lineage back into the line of succession. Naturally, he agreed with his brother's proposal. Unbeknownst to anybody but Xerxes, this was all supposed to orchestrate the king's own opportunity to get close to and sleep with Artonte. Herodotus portrays Artonte as a willing participant in the relationship that followed. Now both the king's niece and daughter-in-law, she formed a relationship with Xerxes and asked the lust-dumb monarch to keep and wear his royal robe, which had just been woven by Xerxes' only actual lawful wife, Amestris. The royal robe was not just the work of Amestris' own hands, and it was not just proof of Xerxes' age-inappropriate infidelity. It was a symbol of royal power. Multiple stories from multiple authors suggest that there was a specific type of robe, probably a kind of outermost garment like a shawl or a cloak, that was only worn by the king. Artonte wearing it was a sign of many things going wrong, 
insulting Amestris, Mesistes, the young Darius, and the principles of the Empire. Herodotus doesn't explain the logic of what came next, and it may just be that he inserted or changed the details from whoever told him this story. Amestris saw Artonte wearing the royal robe and became convinced that this was all the girl's mother's fault. She imprisoned Mesistes' wife and went to Xerxes with the robe and demanded that this woman be punished. Xerxes, probably relieved that this had no bearing on his actual affair, agreed and summoned his brother to the royal court. He offered that Mesistes should divorce his wife and marry one of Xerxes' daughters. In a not-at-all-subtle jab at Xerxes' taste in affairs, Herodotus has Mesistes refuse on the basis of an age gap. On a historical-political level, Xerxes may have been trying to use this offer to tie his brother even closer to the royal family and prevent exactly what came next. Xerxes told his brother that his refusal would cost him and that he would never be with his wife again. That wasn't, in the end, exactly true. Mesistes' wife was horribly mutilated. Her nose, ears, lips, tongue, and breasts were all cut off, and she was sent back to Mesistes' home in her broken and bloodied state. It is implied that she barely lived long enough for Mesistes to see what happened. The satrap of Bactria gathered up his remaining sons and entourage and raced away from the capital to raise a revolt in the northeastern provinces. Herodotus says that he never made it back, and also that his army was attacked by Xerxes' own forces. In either case, Mesistes and his sons were killed in battle after trying to raise a revolt. Here's the thing. Events in the Eastern Empire are always the muddiest in Greek sources, and the story of Mesistes reads like a folktale because it probably is one to some extent. However, that doesn't mean that there's nothing to glean here. Xerxes may very well have had an affair with his daughter-in-law. Powerful men throughout history have done much worse. Mesistes' wife may have been brutally murdered for some perceived offense. There's plenty of evidence in Achaemenid history for brutal executions among the nobility. Those two things alone could have been enough to spark some historical nobles into rebellion without all of the added mystique of first pursuing the mother or the royal shawl. Those might just be symbolism and Herodotus pulling threads together. On a geopolitical level, Mesistes ruled Bactria, and at least one theory probably gives him supporters to a royal claim among the nobility. Bactria and the northern satrapies formed a strong base of some of the most hardened and veteran soldiers in the empire. On top of that, Mesistes had just been a witness to most of the campaign in Greece. He would have observed the defeat at Salome and participated in the carnage of their retreat through Thrace, as well as the defeat at Mycale. He may have seen this as Xerxes' moment of political weakness, too. If we move events around a little and make the marriage of Artonte and Darius or the mutilation of Mesistes' wife the consequences of his actions rather than the motivations, now it becomes a picture of Xerxes violently asserting that he was still in control 
and not to be challenged despite one military setback. Given how Herodotus paints the story, there are lots of possible interpretations. But that's not the only example of Xerxes' brutal punishment at the Persian court. This brings us to our very last story from Herodotus's histories, probably set at the royal court while it was in Babylon. Cetaspes was another royal cousin. His father, Teaspes, had married one of Darius the Great's sisters. And this Cetaspes guy was a real bastard. He raped a young noblewoman, the sister of Megabizus, the reigning satrap of Babylon. As you'd expect, Megabizus was outraged, but whatever Satospi's position was, the satrap wasn't able to enact a punishment on his own. So he went up the chain of command to Xerxes himself. From the king's perspective, this was a cut-and-dry case. Satospi's was plainly guilty and was going to be impaled for his crimes. The rapist's mother, Xerxes' aunt, pleaded for his life, and according to Herodotus, it was Atossa, the queen mother, who suggested an alternative punishment. Instead of being skewered on a stake outside of the Ishtar Gate, Satospes was tasked with circumnavigating Africa, something that was still widely believed to be impossible at the time. If he made it, he could keep his life. So far as the Greeks knew, only one crew in history claimed to have made the round trip at this point, a Phoenician crew sent by the pharaoh Necho II. But there was apparently widespread interest in finding a sea route between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. The Carthaginian navigator Hanno is also supposed to have made his circumnavigation of the African continent around the 5th century BCE. But so far as anyone expected, Satospes was put in command of a doomed voyage and sent off into oblivion. He was not given any more instruction or supplies by Xerxes, so he went to Egypt and hired a ship and a crew and supplies with his own funds to do just what he told them. They set out westward, following the familiar tracks of Phoenician merchant ships all the way to the Strait of Gibraltar, and turned south into the Atlantic. According to Herodotus, he gave up after months of following the coast and returned, first to Egypt and then to the court of Xerxes, hoping that this report would be good enough. The story that Herodotus heard was that Cetaspes had seen a race of dwarves whose clothes were made from palm trees, they fled from their coastal towns any time he and his crew tried to approach them. Unable to trade, they just stole cattle from these towns to resupply. His reason for not making it any further? His ship had literally stopped in the water and would not sail forward no matter what they did with wind or oars. Since all of that sounds almost ridiculous to most modern readers, it's no surprise that Xerxes refused to believe any of it and went back to Plan A. Cetaspes was impaled on a post and one of his own servants ran away with most of his money. Supposedly, the servant himself was captured 
and the wealth was confiscated in Samos by the man who told Herodotus this story. Now that ending certainly sounds fake, but the actual events of Satospi's voyage are surprisingly plausible. We know the Phoenicians were an important block in the Persian Empire at this point, so seafaring exploration was on the table. Satospi's stories of how the locals looked and behaved actually adds up. Several groups of Mbenga pygmy peoples live on the western coast of Africa, and many of those groups did historically make some of their clothes from leaves. The behavior of fleeing into the hills when approached is both sane and reported in multiple accounts of Phoenician trade in West Africa. As for the ship stopping in the middle of the ocean, that actually can happen to smaller, weaker boats like an ancient Mediterranean cargo ship when they hit the strong currents of the South Atlantic gyre. What's actually more impressive is that he made it back. It's thought that many ships weren't able to fight their way back north against the aggressive currents of the North Atlantic, and were ultimately wrecked or lost at sea. In Satospi's case, the point was always clear, though. This voyage was supposed to kill him. The family of Megabizus appears in Scandal again, this time with a much milder story from Theseus. According to the later historian, Megabizos was married to one of Xerxes' own daughters, a girl named Amethyst, who we'll see down the line was not her husband's biggest fan. She found other men to spend time with, and on one of these occasions, Megabizos actually complained to her father. The king actually had to order Amethyst to stop sleeping around. From the stories we have it looks like she obeyed that order for the rest of her father's life. Yeah, this isn't the last time we'll check in on the Megabizos Amethyst family. But I don't want to give the impression that everything was just violence, sex, and war under Xerxes. In the Imperial Corps, the Great King was also presiding over the day-to-day -day administration of an empire. As a hub of literature and record-keeping, this is best preserved in Babylonia, though that doesn't mean quite as much as it once did. Following the Babylonian rebellions when Xerxes took power, most of the archives from the traditional Babylonian elite came to an end, severely limiting our sources compared to earlier kings' reigns. However, even this implies something. The general defeat of entrenched Babylonian nobles must have coincided with the imposition of new local leaders and the confiscation of Babylonian land. Much of this land and political power would have gone to locals who supported the Persian regime and families who rendered service to the crown, especially veterans who received land as payment. This would have the dual effect of strengthening Perso-Babylonian ties and paying off the veterans of the Greek War. Both would also make it unlikely for Babylonia to revolt in the future, which it did not. Within a couple generations, we see records that this had the desired effect, and ethnic Persians would be much more heavily entrenched in Babylonian society by the early 4th century. 
Xerxes also had to deal with the causes and effects of the revolt in the present moment. This is probably the point where the province of Assyria, or Ebirnari, meaning Trans River, became administratively independent and politically dominated by Damascus rather than Babylon. The existing satrap of Babylon, once again Megabyzus, may have been transferred to this new province. It might be irresponsible to speculate based solely on Achaemenid Studies' least reliable historian, but this may have been something of a demotion for a failure to take and sack Delphi during the war, as Theseus reports that Megabyzus was in charge of leading that failed expedition. On the other hand, Theseus is Achaemenid Studies' least reliable historian, and we're dealing with a single fragmentary paragraph here. The newly demoted Babylonia was just now emerging from a crisis that had dominated the last years of Darius's reign. Taxes and food prices had been skyrocketing ever since the Persians took power. Michael Gersa and Martina Schmidl, a seriologist with the University of Vienna, graphed the prices of the most common products and people sold in the Babylonian archives prior to Xerxes' reign, and it is genuinely astonishing. The more of a staple it was, the faster the price rose. Barley prices increased more than sixfold after the Persian conquest. They had started to decline somewhat by Darius's death, but the socioeconomic damage was already done. This would have been partially spurred by the continuing fallout of Persian militarism and the heavy taxation that came along with it, implied as a problem already in the Behistun inscription. This probably connects to Xerxes briefly halting any payments from the state to the Babylonian temples early in his reign, but any time a king did this in Babylon, it was extremely unpopular and as always, the payments started up again within a few years. The tax crises probably paired with one of Babylonia's regular periods of over-irrigation and salinization. From time immemorial, southern Mesopotamia had constantly dealt with the problem of irrigating their fields from the Tigris, the canals dumping both water and salty sediments in said fields, and the long-term effect of literally salting their own land. They'd gotten better at mitigating this over the centuries, but if too many fields were falling to infertility at once, it would compound with the growing taxes to destroy the produce market. It should be noted that even though everything else got three or more times as expensive, land prices barely rose at all during the early Achaemenid period. Apparently, there just wasn't a market for it. Xerxes would have been forced to implement some kind of land and tax reforms to address all of this, or at least have his satrap do that for him. Part of this was doubtlessly accomplished when the old noble families fell from grace following the revolt in 484. Rich families being punished almost always yields land to redistribute. Not everything changed in Xerxes' Babylon, though. Science, research, and the legal tradition that formed the basis for the judiciary all across the empire remained intact. Astrological data from Ur and Babylon just keeps going through this period, 
and Babylonian law remained the standard from Egypt to Parsa and beyond, with one notable change. The enormously inefficient Babylonian calendar was standardized on a 19-year cycle. Unlike the very clean and effective 365-day solar calendar Zoroastrianism borrowed from Egypt, mentioned in the 2020 holiday special, the Babylonian calendar was a lunar calendar with additions made to try and keep it in line with the solar year. In Babylonia, 12 months varied between 29 and 30 days, and no month was consistent from year to year. Over the course of decades and centuries, that meant 12 months was, on average, 354.4 days long. This was a more than 10-day difference every year, rapidly putting the calendar out of line with the seasons. To compensate, the kings of Babylon would consult with their astronomers and declare an extra month as needed. You can imagine how having the king declare when they needed an extra month could get very inefficient, especially since no king since Nabonidus had actually lived in Babylon regularly, and there was some initial hesitancy to give all of his duties over to the satrap. This was even more of a problem since official Aramaic documents always used the Babylonian date no matter where they were actually writing, i.e. most legal documents in the entire empire. Sometime before 476 BCE, Xerxes, the satrap, and the astronomers worked out a new system where one or two months would regularly be inserted with no need for any more declarations from the palace. In years 1, 3, 6, 9, 12, 14, and 17 of a 19-year cycle, either month 6 or 12 would repeat, and that would keep them from drifting too far away from the solar year. It wasn't perfect, and by the time of Darius II, there were already changes and tweaks being made to the exact system, but this greatly streamlined the Babylonian legal system, and probably would have aided the Babylonian agricultural system in developing a reliable cycle of harvest and planting in tune with the rest of society. The basic administration of the empire also continued in the Persian heartland, but Xerxes' projects in Susa, Media, and most importantly, Persepolis deserve an episode of their own. So next time, all we'll do is build. Until then, thank you all so much for listening. If you want more information, you can find it on historyofpersiapodcast.com. You'll find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid Royal Family Tree, and the support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this podcast. That includes one-time donations with buttons scattered all over the website, or a monthly subscription to Patreon, which will get you all sorts of different monthly benefits like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Of course, money is not the only way to support this podcast. The absolute best thing that you can do to help any indie podcast grow is to spread the word. Tell everybody on social media how much you love the history of Persia. Tell them your favorite episode. 
Tell them what a good narrator I am. I don't care. Just send them my way. You can also always leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or whatever your platform of choice is. I always love to see your feedback and see those ratings when they come in. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.